open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, our focus this morning will be on verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading 3, 18 through 4 and verse 6. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of how poorly armed we are how little thinking we do, and whenever we do, how worldly our thinking is, for how comfortable we are, for how little distinction there is, for how little we're willing to suffer for being exiles, strangers, aliens because of your grace. And so embolden us now by your word, by the Christ who so suffered for us. In his name we pray, amen. So this passage has a single command, a single central command that everything else is attached to. Arm yourselves. And the word for arm has clear military connotations. Arm yourselves. The noun form of this word arm is often translated weapon. And so the verb form means weaponize, arm yourselves. Uh, Towards understanding let's first ask ourselves upon what basis does Peter call for us to arm ourselves? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So this command is a consequence of Christ's suffering. Because Christ suffered in the flesh, we're to arm ourselves. So this is a central consequential command. Now let's get it in our minds precisely what this is a consequence of. We're to arm ourselves because Jesus suffered in the flesh. What does he mean by this? 
Well, 3.18 through 22, Peter tells us that Jesus suffered for our sins. Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus suffered to bring us to God. And Jesus rose victoriously over all of his foes. And we're in union with him in this. So that all that he did, by grace, we participate in. Peter has been calling for these exiles to suffer for righteousness, to suffer for righteousness righteously, to not miff up the righteousness in the midst of suffering and get cantankerous and bitter and seek vengeance. He's been calling for us to do good and to be willing to suffer for it, and he's laid out that it's better to suffer for good than for evil, and the reason is Jesus. The reason is because he died for sinners to reconcile them to himself, and you're in union with him, and his victory is your victory. So whenever you're, if you think that all this call to do good, even to those who oppress you, makes you a doormat, look to Christ. And because he suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What are you to arm yourself with? The same way of thinking. It would be great progress if the church would simply arm herself with thinking. Martin Knoll is lamented, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. As you listen to the music or the sermon in the average American church, ask yourself, is the mood one more of amusement or amusement? Is it conducive to thinking or is it meant to bypass thinking? Do the, the music, the, the sermon, does it make you think? Or is it simply to evoke an emotion, a mood, a feeling? So, recent example, Bethel Church is a very popular church. Um, has a lot of music that they put out as one way they've gained a lot of popularity. And a song that is, is currently very popular, Deep Cries Out to Deep. The, the songwriter, Matthew Williams, was interviewed. What does this mean? And he says, Deep Cries Out was a spontaneous prophetic song, which is often an excuse for I didn't really think a lot about it. It was a spontaneous prophetic song. People ask me all the time what it means. To be perfectly honest, in some ways, I don't know. Ezekiel 47 talks about the river of God, and there's that commitment to walk in the river and go where God is going. It's our heart response to Uh, it's our heart response back to God and commitment to walk, dance, and have fun in the river and go wherever it is taking us. Well, read uh, Ezekiel 37, and 10 minutes of reflection on Ezekiel 37 will tell you there's not a call to come and dance in a river. And so the song calls out for us to dance in the river, and there's this refrain that says, we're stirring up deep, deep waters, we're stirring up deep, deep wells. Well, even if you spend some time thinking about what that means, you realize what happens. What happens when you stir up deep, deep waters and deep, deep wells? You get dirty, ugly, nasty water that you don't want to drink from. And the point of this this song is that we've got this fountain that we're drinking from and this river that we're dancing in. Yeah, it's a murky, ugly, nasty river. It may be that a lot of thought has gone into planning many worship gatherings, but are they thinking about thinking? Are Are they trying to provoke thought? We aren't to pit the mind against the heart. We aren't, it's not that we want to be all, all mind and no heart. What we're against is the mindless engagement of the heart. 
We have a word for whenever someone wants to mindlessly toy with your heart and, and provoke it. It's called manipulation. What we want is the heart moved by the revelation of God rather than the manipulations of men. We want a heart that's moved by God's revelation rather than man's imaginations. We, we, if the heart's just a vote, what it's going to be a vote, where your mind is going to go is your own imaginations, your own thoughts, and what you're going to be found to do is worshiping an idol and not God as he's revealed himself to be. Ours should be the ambition of Jonathan Edwards. I should think myself in the way of my duty, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided they are affecting, affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. We want the heart to soar as high as possible, but we want it to be done with the truth of who God is, and we want the affections which we feel towards God to correspond rightly and appropriately to who God is revealing himself to be. Now, if we're far from arming ourselves with thinking, how much further are we from arming ourselves with the militant kind of thinking that this text is calling for? And it's a paradoxical military kind of thinking at that. Therefore, preparing your minds, earlier Peter wrote in, in chapter 1, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Preparing your minds for action, strictly translated, you might have it in old, older translations, gird up the loins of your mind. And so the men of the day would wear these longer garments, and whenever it came time for work or war, you would gird up your loins. You would tuck the garment into your belt. He's saying, prepare your minds for war. Get them ready. If the Christian mind isn't sober, it's drunk. If our minds are not ready for fighting, they've already surrendered. This particular arm that we're to take up in this text is the same way of thinking, the way that Christ was thinking. So how was Christ thinking or what was he thinking as he went to the cross? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us that he was thinking about the joy that was set before him. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." We could go to numerous passages in the scripture to show that his mind was on obedience to his father. As he's crying out in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Or we could go to John 12, 27 through 32, where Jesus makes it clear that though he's mindful of the sufferings that are put before him, mindful that he's going to be bearing the wrath of the father for the sins of his people, that though he's mindful of that, he's mindful of the victory that's to be accomplished through those very sufferings, that through that, now this world will be judged. Now the prince of the power of the air will be judged. Or you could go to John 17, and you'll see that Jesus is mindful of the glory that awaits on the other side of resurrection. 
But what does Peter intend here? What, what kind of thinking? Christ was thinking so many things as he went to the cross. Is there something particular that Peter has in mind as far as this way of thinking? What was Christ thinking? He doesn't, he doesn't elucidate on it. He doesn't unfold anything about it. So has he spoken of it earlier in this letter? Is that why? You remember that this passage, since, therefore, this is a, this is a consequence of what Peter has said in 3.18-22. through 22. And 3.18-22 through 22 are a general application of the same truth that Peter put to slaves in chapter 2. He writes to them in 2, 20 through 23, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. This is grace in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus suffered for good. He suffered not sinning. He suffered not reviling. He suffered not threatening. Okay, that's what he was doing. That's the act. But what was he thinking that lied underneath those actions? What kind of thinking was empowering that kind of act he was entrusting himself the the mind was the mind and the heart were trusting what was he trusting in that's what he was thinking whatever he was trusting that's what he was thinking he was trusting the promises of god specifically he was trusting the one who would judge justly he was entrusting himself to the Father's judgment. He's suffering evil for good, and he can do that because he knows that his Father will judge justly. Peter wants us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, considering all the promises that are ours. Christ died for your sins. If you're trusting Jesus, you can trust him. You can trust that because judgment fell on him for your sins, whenever judgment falls again, it will also be for your salvation. Whenever judgment falls on the, on the world, it will be for your salvation. It will be for your ultimate and final deliverance. Judgment is good news across the board for the people of God. If you're in Jesus, every time judgment falls, it falls in your benefit. It fell on Jesus your sins are paid for. And whenever the world has to pay for her sins, it's for your further deliverance. All of God's acts, this is how for you God is in Jesus Christ. Everything he is, he is now for you. All of his grace is for you. All of his judgment is for you. And so because this is so, arm yourself with this way of thinking. Arm yourself with this. How many Christians, because it's only this ooey, gooey, grace, and nothing more. And whenever it's only grace, you make grace mean nothing. Whenever there's only grace, you make grace mean nothing. Grace means something if there's a wrath and a, and a judgment that you're saved from. But because only this ooey, gooey, false kind of grace is declared, there's no judgment and because there's no judgment proclaimed, the saints don't realize they can trust the Father whenever they do good and they suffer for it. 
They can trust that judgment will come. It kills boldness. It kills courage. It kills strength. And so Peter's calling for us to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. And that he wants us to arm ourselves concerning in regards to thinking about trusting our Father that judgment will come, vindication will be served, justice will be served. That that's his aim is made clear because of both what precedes and what follows. What precedes is that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The one who was rejected and crucified stands supreme and risen at the right hand of God and vindicated, and all will see his glory. And so that's what proceeds. And what follows is this statement in verses 5 and 6 about God's judgment. And so you're to arm yourself with the same way of thinking, thinking about the judgment of God and trusting how even that is for you in Christ. Now, whenever you give a soldier a gun, whenever you arm a soldier, you need to give him something to shoot at, and you need to give him something to shoot for. He needs something to shoot at, and he needs something to shoot for. Shoot at sin, and shoot for righteousness. Shoot at sin, shoot for righteousness. Sometimes it's said that theologians or academics can so emphasize the mind that they forget the heart. And that's sometimes true. Here's another way of stating the same problem. Sometimes you can so, so focus on the mind that you forget what a sharp mind is for. A sharp mind is for stabbing sin. A sharp mind is for stabbing sin. Whenever the mind is armed, don't treat it like a toy. Whenever it's armed, aim it. And aim it at sin. If a loaded gun is dangerous, a loaded mind is far more. A gun loaded with a potentially deadly bullet by itself is inert unless it's taken up by a deadly mind. A loaded mind not aimed at sin will hit pride every time. Paul says knowledge puffs up. A loaded mind not aimed at sin will hit pride every time, and pride kills. When you're thinking, if you're not using to th that thinking to fight sin, it will result in pride every time. The purpose that Peter sets before us, this is why you're to arm yourself. For, because, this is why to arm yourself. For, because, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that passage can be misunderstood in two dangerous ways. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The two dangers, and, and here's why they're so dangerous, is because you, by these two misunderstanding, misunderstandings, you can think that you're killing sin when you're really shooting yourself in the foot. And so here's misunderstanding number one, the false teaching of perfectionism or sinless perfectionism, that you can just simply cease. Permanently, decisively, totally cease from sin. Anytime you start to examine teachers of perfectionism, you'll find that their perfection isn't so perfect. So the Wesleyan variety says that 
uh, you have this perfection of the heart where the heart no longer willfully, knowingly, intentionally, purposefully sins. You do it by accident, but you really didn't set out to do it. So not so perfect. Or there's the Keswick variety, K-E-S-W-I-C-K. Keswick theology, if you've ever heard something like let go and let God, that stems from the Keswick movement. And it was the idea of live on this higher spiritual plane. You just need to let go and let God and you'll have the second experience so that you live on this higher spiritual plane of perfectionism. And so really what happens in their mind is this is whenever you've come into this perfect state is whenever you've had an experience. Again, not so perfect. Or Charles Finney, Second Great Awakening, his followers. Charles Finney had a sliding scale of perfectionism. It was according to your ability. So whenever you're sin, you're sin and you, you are a Christian, it, you just weren't up to the task of it at that point. But you're as perfect as you possibly could be. So it's the sliding scale of perfection, which means nothing. And though it's an apocryphal tale, it's not true, it's a story... It's based upon a real instance where Spurgeon provoked a perfectionist preacher. And, uh, but the, the, the tale, the story is more fun. And so it's, it's been told a lot and it makes the point. Spurgeon was at a conference and so there's this perfectionist preacher who's saying he's perfect. And the next morning at breakfast, Spurgeon dumps his milk on his head. And the man erupts in anger and... Thus, perfectionism debunked. Spurgeon won the debate without a word. Second, there's the false teaching of asceticism. Asceticism is severity to the body for the sake of the, the spirit growing strong. Uh, asceticism, like the Greek-minded Gnostics of old, thought the body was bad. The spirit needs to be released and free. And so think of the pagan priest in the showdown with Elijah who cut themselves so that God would might hear them. And this isn't something that's been alien to Christendom. So think of the Pharisees with their frequent fastings. Or the pillar saints of the early church who lived on pillars, columns, had food brought to them, hoisted up, exposed for years to the elements, living on this little small space. Or think of the, the monks who practice self-flagellation. Colossians 2.3 says that such teaching has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So does this text teach perfectionism by asceticism, or does it teach some kind of sanctification by suffering? You grow more holy because you suffer? Well, it's true that God uses trials. He, he uses suffering. He uses our pains and our sorrows. He uses these to purge us, to purify us, to discipline us, to make us more like Christ. That's absolutely true. He said as much in chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's true that the Father uses trials and sufferings to make us holy. That's something the Father does. 
God has that sovereign wisdom to arrange your life, to bring about the circumstances and your sufferings and your trials to make you more holy. He never tells us to pursue suffering or cruelty or severity to the body or ourselves in any way that we might grow more holy thereby. You don't have that kind of wisdom. And instantly what you've done, once you've done that, what Colossians just made clear, is rather than starve the body, you fed the body. You fed pride. You begin to see, I accomplished this. I made this happen. I made myself more holy because of what I've done. If you want to be holy, don't pursue suffering. Pursue Christ who suffered If you want to be holy, pursue Christ. And as you're pursuing Christ, as you're pursuing the Savior who suffered, you begin to think like Him. And whenever you think like Him, that's whenever you're made holy. When you arm yourself in this way, what's happening is there's a kind of resolve to suffer for doing good. And that resolve to to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ, for righteousness, for obedience to Him, whenever you've made that kind of resolve because of this certain way of thinking, you know you can trust your Father. When you've made that and then you go through the trial, that's the ceasing from sin. You've turned your back on one way of life, To follow and obey Christ, that's the ceasing from sin. When you're armed with this way of thinking, that's the result. You go through a trial, and whenever you suffer, there's the testing point. You've suffered. The pain is inflicted, and yet you're going to suffer for righteousness, and you're going to suffer righteously. You've ceased from sin insofar as that's concerned in that instant at that point. You remember Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Something like that is happening here. This is a testing point for obedience to that kind of command. Taking up your cross, following this this death to an old way of life, and pursuing obedience to your Lord. When you arm yourself with a mind that's ready to suffer for doing good, that is the specific kind of ceasing from sin that Peter has in mind here. Because in time past, you lived for human passions, In time past, you lived in in this one way, but now you live this way. In time past, you lived for what the Gentiles want to do, what the Gentiles desire, but now, now for the will of God. The time that it was past, that was enough. That suffices. You had enough. You've lived enough in that way, but now the time, this time, for the rest of the time, this is your resolve. This is why you're doing this, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Arming yourself with this way of thinking is an expression of a desire not to live for who you, as you once did. And it's a resolve to, no matter the cost, no matter what suffering it might bring, I want to do the will of God. And the reason this happened, you're not, you're not doing this 
for any other reason other than that God saved you. He called you out of darkness. He called you into light. The reason why there's this time past and there's this time now, the reason why there's this difference is not because you did something, but because the Father called you out of darkness and into his light that you might proclaim his excellencies. And this is how willing you are to proclaim those excellencies. Even if it means suffering, you do it. And the reason you can, you can go forward with that is because you've armed yourself with this. This is how saved I am in Christ. Even his judgment is for me. And this kind of life surprises the Gentiles because this was our way of life. We were this darkness. We were this lostness, but for the grace of God. And it surprises, uh, surprises the Gentiles, the spiritual unbelievers. It surprises them when we don't want to join them in the same flood of debauchery. This passage, you see, isn't saying so much that suffering sanctifies you as it is saying that being sanctified causes you to suffer. It isn't saying that suffering leads to sanctification. It's saying that sanctification leads to suffering. Whenever God does this work so that there's this time past of who you used to be, and now there's this time in which you want to live for the will of God, the Gentiles look at this and they don't understand it. And because of that, they mock you. And the very sanctification that makes you willing to suffer is the sanctification that leads to your suffering. Sanctification not only makes you different, but part of the different it makes you is a willingness to suffer for that difference. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, they malign, they ridicule, they mock such behavior. Arming yourself readies you for this. Arming yourself means you're willing to step out of the trenches knowing that heavy machine gun fire is about to be unleashed for you, and you do it anyway. Why? Faith. In what? But they, verse 5, will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this maligning, we can step out of the foxhole in faith knowing that whenever the bullets fly, they lose. It doesn't matter how, the more bullets they let fly, the greater their loss. And so not only is this, there this kind of assurance that justice will be met forth, but there's a kind of sorrow that we bear in this, is there not? That as we step out of the trenches, we suffer for good, all is gained for us. And we have this peace and assurance that all will be made right in the end, and yet there's this, this, there's this sense of con, of of our hearts being broken, and how great their loss. Now, this judgment comes upon the living and the dead. Some think that the living here refers to the spiritual, spiritual living, spiritually living, and that the dead are then the spiritually dead. He'll, he'll judge the spiritual living, the saints, those alive in Christ, the dead, those who are unbelievers. But Peter's talking about a judgment of the Gentiles. And so whenever he says the living and the dead, I think he means the living Gentiles, the dead Gentiles. He'll judge the living dead, and he'll judge the dead dead. 
Peter used the same language in Acts 10.42. God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, is, that he, that Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. The point there was simply, he'll judge everyone. And the point here specifically is that he'll judge all Gentiles. Now, why does Peter put it this way? As we are maligned, we'll likely see the men of this world prosper and the saints, in many instances, suffer for doing good. Where's the justice? We say that they're perishing. We die with them. And yet, during this life, they flourish, we wither. There's no apparent judgment. There's no sign of God's displeasure. There seems to be no justice. Why live this way? But if we've armed ourselves, if we're looking with the eyes of faith, we know that we're pilgrims. We know that this city of man is indeed perishing, and we look to that eternal city whose builder and maker is God that will never fade in glory. We know that this world is an ugly witch, and she's only casting some spell to make herself appear beautiful. And we have the eyes of faith, and we can see through the spell, and we know her as she really is. If we've armed ourselves, we see that ours is the hope of victory and vindication on the other side of resurrection. We see our Lord who suffered and then was glorified, and we know we follow in his steps. Peter here is arming us to avoid the temptation that the psalmist fell into. Psalm 73, 2 through 5. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He later laments, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Why did I do all this good when all this suffering has come upon me for it? It's all in vain. There's a key change in that psalm. It goes from a minor key of lament to this major key of rejoicing and exaltation. What made the difference? 73, 16 through 17. But when I thought, what made the difference for the psalmist? He thought. What did he think about? When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What made the difference? He thought. And he thought that the wicked will have to deal with God. And then he begins to think the God that they will have to deal with by grace because he's provided a sacrifice because he dealt with my sins and saved me. The God that they will have to deal with in judgment. He's my inheritance. And he rejoices. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and heart 
may fail. Oh, in this pilgrimage, we will fail in this way again and again. But here, he's arming himself. You see it? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. While, some, while, while none of the wicked, none, none of the wicked are left off. That's his point. None of the righteous are let down. You have a different dead in verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. The, the, the sense of the verse is it was preached even to those who are now dead. Well, the saints, the, the, the point is, again, they've, they've died. You're preaching resurrection, and they've died. Wages of sin is death. What about them? Don't doubt the purpose of God in preaching the gospel. Those who have died will live. Those who have died in Christ will live. This is why the gospel was preached to them, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Don't doubt the purpose of God in the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Sin has been dealt with in Christ. Our judgment borne by the one who is our righteousness. And he was risen victorious. And you're in union with him. And just as he rose, so will you. So in light of this, saints, let us repent. We have been at leisure in the living room of this world rather than at arms in the armory of God. Because we're not armed, we're driven and we're manipulated emotionally by the prince of the power of this air, by wicked men, by our own lust and desires. Because we're not armed, we're trying to live in this life. And we lose our life because of that. We're trying to live now in this world that's perishing and we're trying to live our old life rather than living the future resurrection life that's already ours in Christ. Because we're not armed, we're trying to live a non-distinguishable life. Because we're not armed, we're unwilling to be maligned. We seek the approval of this world. Because we're not armed, we're failing to see that God has disapproved of this world whose approval we're seeking. Because we're not armed, we're seeking man's vindication instead of the hope of the resurrection. So church, arm yourself. Arm yourself because Christ has suffered. Arm yourself to live as an exile, to live as a stranger, an alien to this world, to live differently now than you have in the past because God called you out of darkness into light. Arm yourself in trusting your soul to the one who will judge the living and the dead. Entrust yourself. Arm yourself in trusting the one who died for your sins, who suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, who rose and rules from the right hand of the Father with all enemies being subjected to Him. Arm yourselves willing to surprise the Gentiles by your behavior. Willing to be mocked and ridiculed by them 
knowing that there is a judgment for the wicked and that there's life everlasting for the righteous. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our cowardice, even more reprehensible, our cowardice because of our own sinful lust and behavior. Grant repentance. Grant that we might be armed, having looked at the Christ who so suffered for us, that in gratitude and thankfulness, we will take up our cross, we will follow Him, we will endure, we will persevere. And thank You for all the promises that are ours, that all that You are, You are for us in Christ, in salvation and judgment. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.